Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Our guest this week is John McWhorter, a Columbia University professor, author, New York Times columnist, and one of America's leading authorities on linguistics. But beyond his academic career, McWhorter has also found a following as a prominent critic of the new brand of language policing, statue toppling, academic cancelling anti racism that has taken hold in the United States and beyond. In his new book, Woke Racism, McWhorter argues that this is not just a noxious ideology, but a religion, complete with the original sin of white privilege, a completely illogical catechism, and a set of high priests to spread the bad news that all of the obstacles facing black Americans are due to structural or systemic racism. This creed, he argues, is not just wrong, but actively harmful to the very people it purports to help. It has more to do with self-congratulation among the faithful whom McWhorter calls the elect, than any real attempt at social justice. As well as skewering the sloppy thinking and bullying behaviour of the elect, McWhorter offers a roadmap for how to deal with their style of thinking, along with some concrete suggestions for how to improve the lot of black Americans. I started our interview by asking John what it is about this version of anti-racism that makes it a religion rather than simply a political ideology or a social movement. The idea is that if you're showing that you know structural racism exists, it's okay to do all sorts of things. It's okay to imply all sorts of things. It's okay to be abusive, to deprive people of their livelihood, to shame people, that all of these things are okay because of this one larger imperative. And no rational kind of argument works. And if you offend them, you are, you are chased out of the room. They have an idea that you are not to be present. It's not that you have a different opinion. It's that you're noxious. The people who I'm calling the elect, when somebody doesn't agree with them, are inclined to not want to be around you, to actually use metaphors involving pollution. And all of that is very similar to what we're more familiar with in terms of how heresy is thought of, or all sorts of aspects of untidiness in religions around the world. So certainly one could classify all of this as one more ideology. But in my book, I wanted to make clear that we have a problem that there's a certain kind of person who has acquired disproportionate influence in very important aspects of society. And that anyone who thinks that what we need to try to do is have a conversation with that kind of person, unfortunately, and I really mean unfortunately, I don't say this just to be abusive or rhetorical. Unfortunately, on this subject, that kind of person can't be reached. And I think the handy analogy is with religious faith and how it would be very difficult to teach someone that Jesus doesn't love them. 
you, you, you might convince one out of a thousand people. But that's what it is with these people so that if we're gonna deal with the elect, it's not about talking about John Stuart Mill and teaching them that they're different paths to the same mountaintop and there needs to be a marketplace of ideas. That is like talking to any of us about whether or not we could allow pedophilia being okay. There's just no point in making the argument. Instead, we have to understand that, that kind of person either has to be told no or worked around. And if we don't understand that, we're gonna let that kind of person's ideology take over things that we all hold dear. And it alarms me to see the extent to which that's happening. Has it always had that kind of characteristic of being a religion? I mean, how you say in in the book that it it's evolved from the, the kind of language these people use is is similar to what very radical left wing um, black American nationalists um, were kind of proselytizing many decades ago. How do we kind of chart the evolution to where we've got to now? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah. Um... There's always been this kind of person in especially um, academic and intellectual circles. And part of the reason I feel like I'm very familiar with them is because I happen to be an academic and I have known these people since the late 80s. It used to be that there was a certain kind of radical leftist person and personality making a certain kind of argument in a very uncompromising way and often being rather abusive. But I think most of us thought, although even 25 years ago, there was a, an alarm armist idea that campuses were being taken over by quote-unquote tenured radicals. That always struck a lot of us as alarmist. Really, you learned from that kind of person. That kind of person is not insane, and it was okay if that kind of person was, say, one member of the faculty, or that there was, say, one department that was especially given to that kind of thinking, but most weren't. And so it used to be <coughs> that there was that kind of person around. I have um, offended that kind of person two or three times in my career, and you know, experienced, wow, logic doesn't work here. They are ensconced in a certain vision of battling power differentials as the central focus of humanity. And if you aren't committed to that, to the extent that they are, they think of you as a terrible person and you can't change it. And so you work around it or you tell them no, or you avoid them. But starting in about 2020, that sort of person started calling the tune. In the wake of George Floyd and with the social dynamics of the pandemic, a new idea emerged among moderate left people that our job is to bow down to the demands of the elect in order to not be called racist on social media. And the problem is that if that's what happens, they get pretty much everything they want in especially academic, intellectual, and artistic, and increasingly scientific and even judicial circles. They get what they want. And unfortunately, their vision of the world is a very narrow one. And it's not as concerned with actual justice as many of them think. And we have to realize that this is a problem. But yeah, it, these people have been around for a long time. It's just that they've been allowed disproportionate influence and power over the past couple of years. Yeah. And how do you think this, how does this uh, movement manifest itself? Is it primarily to do with kind of language policing trying to call people out and, and get people fired? Or is it is there an institutional element to it too, to try and get people who think the right way into the kind of a kind of Gramscian process where you occupy the, you know, the the long march through the institutions? I think it's especially the latter. I think a lot of us are most annoyed by the language policing because it lends itself to being discussed over social media and it feels especially intrusive that you are basically persecuted 
for saying things that don't have the right flavor to a certain kind of person. But the real issue here is that that kind of person wants people with their views to be running the show. They want their people to be hired. They want people who don't think like them to have to go get other jobs. And that's perfectly understandable. Wouldn't we all like people who think the way we think to run everything? They're no different. But unfortunately, that kind of person has a sense of what social justice is that most of us don't agree with, including the very reasonable among us. But yeah, there is a Gramscian attempt to take over the show in that way. The language policing is because they're under the impression, and part of the problem with the elect is that they can be very naive in many ways. They're under the impression that if you don't let people say things, they won't think them. Most of us understand that if anything, if you don't let people say something, they think about it more. The elect don't understand that, and they never will. So that means that we end up wasting an awful lot of time jumping people for saying things the wrong way. And all of us, except the elect, understand that civil rights leaders of the past, leftists of the past, Mrs. Pankhurst, for you guys, etc., those people would have been appalled at the extent to which we pay attention to how somebody phrases something, what somebody's term is for something, terms changing about every 10 years, and the idea being that if you use the one from 10 years ago, you're a bad person. That would have made no sense to any hard leftist as late as 1980. That's a new thing, and it serves no purpose. That's a pro one of many problems with the elect. And what do you think about this movement that it, and you speak about this in the book, what is it though that it's, that is so attractive about it to seemingly to such a large number of people because you talk about it emerged from originally from a quite a sort of niche uh, environment but it's become very widespread i mean do we put down to the cut that down to structural dare i say structural issues or is it is it the charisma of the high priests of the movement i mean what what do you put its popularity down to um it wouldn't be any particularly charismatic high priest it's interesting you say that I never thought about it until right now, but the high priests of this movement actually don't happen to be especially charismatic. It isn't that there's a star presence. The people involved are actually rather low-key personalities. It's less that than the fact that it's ironic. We are a society where being a racist is thought of as a terrible thing, and that's, that's good. It's important that racism is thought of that way because that's not the way it was as recently as, say, 40 years ago. Combine that with a movement that says that you have a fuller understanding of not being a racist than most people. Don't we all like to feel that we're ahead of the curve? Don't we all like to feel that we have a message that the rest of humanity would benefit from? That's a good feeling. Also, if you're part of a, of a movement, you have a sense of belonging. And many people say, and I haven't had time to make a study of this, but I find it plausible that this sort of thing is particularly attractive to people who are no longer as overtly religious as the previous generation of them would have been. If you're not going to church on Sunday, or here in America, if you belong to a particularly secular church, such as the Unitarian, where it might as well not be a Christian religion in the way some people practice it, if that's your religion, you might be yearning for something larger. And this elect religion ends up filling the hole beautifully. Hmm. Um, another thing I'm, I'm interested in is how do you think this this very Manichaean view of the world, because it does strike me that it seems to always be kind of black versus white. How does that rub up against a country like America that is extraordinarily diverse, not just in terms of 
lots and lots of different um, ethnic groups, but also lots of mixed race people. I mean, how does someone who is of, of mixed parentage fit into this worldview that they have? Well, in a way that can be hard to understand if you don't grow up in the muck of this country, the sense of the, the, the dominant sense is that the person of mixed ancestry is of color and that that is the defining trait of them. Now, how much of color they are, we're not supposed to think about that. Manichaean is definitely the word. It's that you are not white. And that therefore, to some extent, you must be discriminated against, you must be oppressed, you must not be seen fully by the ruling class. And so we operate first on a hopelessly oversimplified metric in 2022, that America is all about white versus black. That's been out of date since the early 70s, but we pretend. And then to the extent that there are more and more just plain mutts among us, the idea is the extent to which you're not white is a source of your oppression in one way or another. I think we're getting away from the old idea that I grew up with, that if you're biracial, then you must identify as African-American, period. That was the idea. There's no choice. Now, I do think that there are people who genuinely see themselves as half one thing and half the other. But under the elect ideology, that other is as if you were Black anyway. And so one of the weirdest things that it's going to look funny from the perspective of time is a very light-skinned person who you would barely think was anything. Or if you thought they were something, it's that, you know, they're maybe, you know, one quarter Filipino or God knows what. That kind of person will often talk as if they were a black person in 1950. They, they had been taught to think of themselves as oppressed by being one of the other. And it's clearly, it's not to say that they've not had any kind of experience at all worth mentioning, but they're clearly exaggerating, but it's based on the way, the kinds of self-conceptions that the elect suggest and promulgate as the right ones. And if you try to tell them, aren't you fetishizing color in the way that we tried to get away from in the 1950s and 60s, then they have very creative answers, but none of them are very satisfactory. I mean, we'll, we'll come on to the kind of solutions to, to that in, in a bit. But just coming back to something you were saying before about the kind of the, the yearning for meaning and how that perhaps drives this, the attraction of this creed to people. Is there something in the, the kind of what we call elite overproduction here in that we have this cadre of people who have higher education but are not in a commensurately high status job afterwards and that, that an ideology or a religion whatever you wouldn't want to call it like this with uh, pseudo sophisticated jargon is very appealing to that kind of person i don't know um i see where you're going but i see too many people with top class ivy league jobs who indulge in this sort of thing too i mean yeah maybe it's the sort of person who wishes they had a better job and is kind of taking on its trappings. But the, the the interest in this way of thinking doesn't seem to go away, even if you have a tenure job at Princeton. So partly, but I think also it's part of the way many people feel like they're enlightened and useful today. Well, that actually, that kind of takes me on to a related question, which is, do you make it, do you differentiate between the, the earnest and the convinced and the, the truly religious and those who are kind of putting it on or who they're kind of paying lip service to it because they know that to do otherwise would risk their careers and so on. Well, the latter class is most people. I mean, that's what scares me to pieces is that in so many institutions, most people 
do not believe in what the elect are preaching, but they go along with it because they don't want to lose their jobs or they don't want to risk the social opprobrium. And if you happen to have become someone like me, you hear from people all the time, people like me and my blogging head sparring partner, Glenn Lowry, we get, I, we never asked for this, but for some reason, we get gobs of messages from people every day saying, I am really afraid of these sorts of things that are happening in my department, at my company, in my community, in my religion, but I'm afraid to say anything because I've watched the heads roll when people have bothered to speak up. There is no doubt in my mind, based on the amount of missives I've gotten of that kind since roughly June of 2020, that it's become part of the fabric of educated America to walk in fear of the elect. The elect is a small group, but it's really, it's an ironic thing in that racism has receded so much, not entirely, but so much that people are deathly afraid of being called racist in public. You combine that with social media, and it means that a small vocal minority of people can preach a truly frightening, narrow, prosecutorial, and fake ideology. And everybody jumps to their tune because they don't want to be called racist on this new thing called social media. It wouldn't have been this way 20 years ago, but Twitter, frankly, has an awful lot to do with this. Absolutely. Um, but I think and one of the things you argue in the book is that, and in the, in the subtitle of the book, it, indeed, is that it, it betrays black America. So it, it's not just about, you know, white professors being cancelled or, or chucked out of their jobs, bad as, uh, as that is. It's that this ideology, as well as being wrong, is actively harmful to black Americans. Can, can you just unpack that a bit? I mean, in what ways is it, is it undermining black Americans, in your view? Well, for example, standardized tests. Black kids tend not to be as good at them. There are socio-historical reasons why. It's a problem that can be addressed. But if you want to show that you know racism exists, then your job is to say, get rid of the tests because the tests must be racist. That has become an increasingly popular solution here over the past two years in various public and private institutions. Get rid of the tests because black people aren't as good at them. They must be racist. But the problem is, if your idea is that it's racist to submit a black person to a test of abstract cognitive skill, you're coming very close to saying that black people aren't very bright. And, you know, the people who do this don't care because what they've done is they've showed that they know racism exists. That's really pernicious, but that's how you harm black people there. Not to mention in not giving black kids training in the exercise of taking tests, which they're going to run up against again and again. Or you say that the police kill too many black men, which is true, although they kill more white men. But still, let us not quibble. The police kill too many black men. Let's defund the police. Let's pull back on the police in underdeveloped communities. Now, the people living in those communities, the black people living in those communities don't want the police to be defunded at all. They want more police. That, to the elect, is a conundrum, something that you kind of scratch your chin about. Whereas really, the solution is pretty easy. No defunding the police, change the police, but the idea that there's less policing in dangerous neighborhoods where people are fearing for their lives because unfortunately black young men are battling out in the streets, defund the police, that's almost inhuman. The reason somebody would say defund the police while the black grandmother living in that community wants more police is because when you say defund the police, you're showing that you know racism exists. That is more important than anything else. That ranking 
of showing that you know racism exists over anything else, including being nice to people. That's why this sort of thing is alarming because where the police have been defunded, where the police have been pulled back on since 2020, crime has gone up, more black people have been killed. And yet the elect continue in their idea that police need to be replaced by social workers, the police need to be pulled back. This is a religion. And one of the extraordinary lines or parts of the book is when you mention that a school in your own city um, of New York has, correct me if I'm wrong, they changed their motto from work hard and be nice because apparently working hard is seen as a, a white virtue or something like this. Yes, that's the KIPP Academies. And um, that's a perfect example of this sort of thing. How in the world do you justify not telling kids to work hard and behave? Where in the world do you get the idea that it's wrong to say that to any children? Now, where the impulse comes from is the notion that societal racism is such that it's too much to expect from Black kids to also stand up straight and behave. So what you would tell any child anywhere else in the world, whether we're talking about the rainforest, whether we're talking about you know, Beijing, whether we're talking about any small town anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, you tell kids to behave and to work hard. There's an exception for Black American kids in the United States because of structural racism. So in other words, you're trying to show that you know racism exists and you think that's more important than teaching kids who are already up against enough that they need to behave and that working hard just might have certain payoffs. Now, if you ask them the question, what would help these kids? What would help them gain purchase in society other than working hard? What's this alternate strategy that you're talking about? Are you saying that they're gonna be charismatic? Are you saying that them just standing there being interesting and being not white is gonna get them the fruits of society? Well, eyes roll. You're not supposed to ask those sorts of questions, but that's because this is a religion that has more to do with people showing each other something than in helping actual people. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com 
slash host. And you have a very brisk, in my view, commendably uh, brisk kind of set of points on what you think that um, should be done. Um, and it focuses on education, um, the value of vocational work, which I guess is um, linked to education, and a third one, which has just slipped my mind. Um, um, phonics in school, learning how to read through the phonics method. Right, which is interesting because that's very that's now standard here in the UK. Um, and it was a big kind of battle over whether that was the way way to teach kids I mean, how how much progress have you seen on the on the front on those fronts that, that you describe with phonics um the, the battle is still being raged here and it's because of a certain kind of person overrepresented in schools of education who is committed mainly to showing that they know that racism exists so no matter what reading science says no matter how clear the evidence is as to how kids learn how to read well including poor kids and including black ones there's a certain kind of person who thinks that reading needs to be taught through this quote unquote holistic method that incorporates also teaching kids values of what's called empathy empathy is code for teaching them to be good social justice warriors from a very early age so you have to teach them holistically it has to be as much about the content as the mechanics and so generation after generation of especially poor black kids don't learn to read well while the people who are in charge of them are priding themselves on knowing that racism exists it it, it won't do that's been going on for decades but as far as um, vocational school i think that is highly plausible politically. It's not something that the Biden administration is particularly interested in at this point, but the most important thing, and I do see some movement on this, although it's slow, is getting rid of the war on drugs because that black market that you can make half of a living off of, and I can completely understand why somebody from a poor neighborhood might drift into that choice. But if that black market is there, then you're much less likely to ever have any kind of meaningful legal work. And what it all comes down to for me, my three, as you say, brisk points, what it comes down to is that the main thing that fuels a sense of Black people as somehow an exception, where the rules don't apply to us, where you're going to have somebody who's running schools for Black kids saying, don't work hard, don't pay attention, and not basically asked to leave the planet, that that's considered something normal to say to, to children. All of that is ultimately predicated upon the relationship between poor black communities and the police. It all comes down to that. You can talk about other manifestations of racism. You can talk about structural racism. What really creates the whole sense of a separate identity now among white people watching as well as black people is the sense of the cops as the enemy. To the extent that young black men in poor black communities do not grow up thinking of the cops as the enemy, to the extent that they do not encounter cops, America's race question will turn the corner. All sorts of things that people think need to happen will not happen, but we'll talk about these things in a new way. I think black people will be humanized in the eyes of others as well as in the eyes of ourselves. If there isn't this narrative that to be black is to walk ever in danger of being hurt or killed by a cop. And the truth is that the cops are not as nice to black people as they are to others. The truth is the cops are not more likely to kill black people than they are white people. If you look at the statistics, 
Of course, the elect don't want to hear that, but nevertheless, it's true. But the cops are meaner, no doubt. My solution is get the cops away from Black people. Just have there be as few interactions as possible because there's only so much you can do about what the cops are like. And if that happened, all it would take is one generation that didn't have that sense of being Black as being preyed upon by the state. And everything else would fall very much into place. And so that means no war on drugs. That means ready middle-class level jobs for people who are not selling drugs and who come from schools that don't lead them to want to go to college. Go learn how to fix heaters and air conditioners and make $100,000 a year with two years of good vocational education. That's what should happen to those guys. And make sure that poor Black kids learn how to read properly. Because if you're, if you're not taught to read, and you're still moving your lips when you're reading by about fifth grade, you're not gonna be good at anything else in school either. It's a chore. I mean, all of us who have been more fortunate, I try to imagine, suppose reading had always been the way reading feels and whatever that other language is that we took. You know, you took Spanish, you took French, or maybe you took Russian or something like that. You're Jewish, you're, you're in Hebrew school. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so imagine like if that's what the page looked like. Well, you know, you can read, but you wouldn't want to. That's what it's like to those kids. And so next thing you know, you're out on the street. Phonics would take care of that, I think. Yeah, I literally used to get a headache reading Russian when I was at university. So yeah, it's, it's, I sympathize. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, even if you can, it hurts. It does, it does, it does, even now, even now. Um, yeah. I wonder, another of our guests on this podcast is a guy called um, Vivek Ramaswamy who wrote a book called Woke Inc. And that's all about how blue chip American Wall Street companies have co-opted this agenda. I mean, do you see that as a kind of almost a separate problem that is to do with corporate culture or just another manifestation of this, the overall um, problem that you've spoken about? That will melt away when the excesses of wokeness are stood down by a critical mass of people. I mean, without a doubt, there is money to be made in playing to that sensibility people have that pretending that racism is worse than it is, is somehow a higher moral calling. Next thing you know, of course, that's going to make its way into logos, that's going to make its way into certain marginal corporate practices, into the imagery. Sure, you didn't have to wonder whether that was going to happen. <clears throat> I imagine that will happen less if our society becomes a more honest one. The question is whether it will. Do you think that, obviously your book is very much about the United States, but have you been surprised at how the movements such as Black Lives Matters have taken off in other countries in Europe that do not have, that maybe share some aspects of America's experience, particularly with the UK and slavery, for example, but don't have America's distinct history but are repeating the same tropes. Does that strike you? When you look at that on the news, do you, what, I mean, how does it feel? There's an extent to which I've sometimes been amazed at how vibrant and how vivid this kind of ideology is in places beyond the United States, because there's a tendency that we think that it has to do with a particular cocktail between descendants of slaves and white people. But the truth is, I always realize I shouldn't be surprised because it feels good to be an elect. Anybody, you know, whatever country they're in feels good, especially if you're an educated person, to know that you're ahead of the curve, 
that even if you're educated and affluent, that you have a moral commitment that shows that you're still a good person, that sense of atonement. And honestly, I think it's human in all of us, as we know from our origins as simians, it can be fun to diss people, especially the distance of social media allowing it so that you're not actually standing in people's faces. The kind of abuse that you see on Twitter in particular, and I don't mean quote unquote trolls, I mean, even just ordinary people. Twitter's mean. Twitter's a really bad neighborhood. It's clear that there's an aspect of humanity, even in nice people, that enjoys being snarky and mean. You can see it in fourth graders and we never grow up. I don't see why that would stay within the bounds of the United States. And so there it is in the UK and Canada and Australia. It's interesting. It seems to be more the Protestant nations than the Catholic ones from what I've seen. I don't know what it is about Catholicism that holds it off, but yeah. It's something that's attractive to all people to feel wise, to feel like you belong, and also sometimes to be recreationally mean. <laughs> recreationally mean is um, definitely a phrase I'll be I'll be using. Um, you you kind of preempt the reception of the book at the beginning, and you say that you'll be be called self hating. I mean, is that the experience you've had so far um, in the United States? I mean, the book's only been out for about a week or so here in the UK. But yeah, what, what has been uh, your experience so far? Um, you know, actually, I haven't heard a whole lot about the self-hating. There's the occasional person on Twitter, usually black, who says that I am a self-hating Uncle Tom. But you know, whoever, it, they didn't read the book. And I think it's obvious to anybody who knows me for five minutes that that's not who I am. That hasn't been the main response. The main response has been, and it's been interesting because it's genuinely challenging, is what I'm talking about really that important compared to what the right wing is doing in the United States right now? And it's gotten to the yeah. point where the right is trying to ban books. The right wing has questioned critical race theory. And to the extent that that discussion has, that discussion, I agreed with the right on that until a few months ago when it really did get to the point of trying to ban perfectly innocent books. Critical race theory, we've had a big argument here over exactly what it means, where I think a lot of people are pretending to think that whenever you say critical race theory, you must mean certain obscure legal papers written 40 years ago, rather than an ideology that's percolated from those papers into education schools and therefore into public and private school curricula. But there's been a question as to whether what I'm talking about is a tempest in a teapot compared to, for example, efforts from the right to subvert our elections, refusal to believe in the results of an election that, that did not allow Donald Trump to become president again. And the truth is, woke racism was written mostly in late 2020. It was written before the takeover of the Capitol, and I managed to slip that in. But it was completely finished about a year ago. So there are a lot of things that have happened since where a lot of people are saying they're more interested in what's come from the right. I'm not completely convinced. I think that it's at the point where there's something happening on the left that is equally important to what's happening on the right. Because what a lot of people are basically saying is, well, you know, our elections are in peril. Well, kids are, you know, being taught not to read books by black authors in school. Isn't that more important? Who cares whether academia and the media and the arts and our judicial system are being taken over by a blinkered anti-intellectual and punitive ideology. Who cares? And frankly, I think that's a question that wouldn't be asked in a great many other countries. I do care about the takeover of those things, although those things aren't everything. The things that the right are affecting aren't everything either. But it's been, that's been the main response that I think deserves, de deserves a, a, a real 
grappling. Of course, there are people who don't like that I clearly am not a great fan of religion. And that is that is true. I'm an atheist. Religion has frustrated me often in my life, and I, I did not completely hold that back in the prose. Um, but that means that if you are a religious person, I completely understand. Here's this book that spends 180 pages saying these people are a religion and putting them down, and you're religious. Well, there, there are people who don't like that, and I knew that would happen, but I can't. I can't help it. I would be dishonest if I didn't put it the way I see it. But yeah, no, the part about me being self-hating and all of that, I get the feeling that is becoming a less likely charge of me, partly because I'm a little older. I used to get that when I was, say, 30. The idea was that I was this kind of little whippersnapper. But I'm at the point where I think anybody can see that I've, I've done some things and established myself and been in the media. No serious person could really think that I am this character from, you know, Uncle Tom's uh, cabin. So yeah, it hasn't been that, but it's been the issue of whether it matters. And I'm interested in that debate. And I think it does matter. Is there a kind of, do you feel any irony in in the fact that you're now best known for your commentary on race when your your career as, as a linguist, um, you teach music history, you have, I've heard you speaking about the beauties of Tolstoy's language you know you have so many other things that make up that make you who you are but but you're mainly thought of as this thing because because you mentioned the one of the big problems is that if you try to think of a non-fiction black American author who hasn't written about race the list is very short yeah um I actually think that it's about half and half with me I think um I've had a big race moment lately because I've been just so loud about it but I think there is another group of people who know me most as a language person and increasingly people who know me as both. I don't feel like that is getting lost. But you know, the truth is, nobody will ever believe this, but the truth is I wouldn't wave a magic wand and choose to be known even this much as a race commentator because the truth is those other things that you're seeing are the real me. I don't wake up thinking about affirmative action. I wake up, you know, I, a year ago, I woke up thinking about that bad translation of War and Peace. But my oh, feeling yeah. is that unreadable. But I feel I feel that I have a duty to say the sorts of things that I do about race because, and this is important, I'm not expressing a view that comes from weird me and six or seven other supposedly Republican people. I know that this is a very ordinary way to think as a black person. You just don't hear that voice much from somebody with a PhD or somebody who writes in the mainstream media as opposed to other parts of the media. And so it's it's a duty. It's work that I do. It's I don't mean to sound ungrateful that I'm getting a certain amount of attention for it, but it's not a labor of love. It's a duty. It's the other stuff that I love. But the truth is, people can tell. People listen to my podcast, Lexicon Valley, and they follow. I'm not advertising my stuff, but my great courses. And Feel free like to. It's fine. We, we plug stuff all the time. I'm against it, but those things exist. And I'm glad that people can see it. And actually, I will plug that I write for the New York Times twice a week now. And in that column, that column is becoming a very accurate portrait of all of what I am. I get to write about the arts and the theater and music. And the race stuff probably hits hardest, but I write about punctuation and how to learn a language. And all of that is me. And I feel I feel like I'm represented pretty roundly out there. But yes, the race stuff has a particular resonance, but I, I have to do it. 
there are only so many people in my position who are going to do it. And I wouldn't mind if there was, you know, a group of people who would come after me and keep going. Coleman Hughes, who is, you know, yeah. much yeah. me, he's doing that. I wish that he would multiply. I wish there were seven or eight of them and then I could relax. But until then, I've got to keep going. Just to finish off with, you kind of you've round off the book with something of a of a call to arms. I mean, what would your advice be to somebody who is faced with the kind of defenestration or heckling or mob tactics that you describe? Um, how, how should we deal with it if you're on the receiving end of the woke mob? You have to crystallize that the point of contention is that they think battling power differentials should be at the center of everything. You think battling power differentials is one of about 10 things that a person might concern themselves with. That's the point. And you have to tell them, I will not, this institution will not center battling power differentials to the degree that you think we should. And you have to say, I do not think that that makes me or us racists. And then you have to tell them no. And you have to understand that when you tell them no, they're gonna call you a racist. They're gonna put it on social media. They're going to start a protest in front of the building. All of that is going to happen. And a certain kind of person needs to start standing up stiff back and just saying, still, no. And eventually they move on because what that kind of person thrives on, unfortunately, is, you know, lobbying the term racist at people. They think it's they think of it as a duty. And if you're not paying attention, they'll go off and do it somewhere else, just like bullies do in the schoolyard if you're able to ignore them. But yeah, it's something that I'm burdening white people with something else. It must be hard as a white person to learn not to be a racist. I think many white people have done a very good job. Now, the next thing is with these elect people, and I'm thinking of white ones more than black ones, frankly, tell them no. Just say, we're not going to do it this way, and you can call me anything you want. That basic script has to become more common. People have to stop being so afraid of being called names on social media, because if you don't endure a little bit of being called those names by those very articulate people with the certain sarcasm and the rolled eyes, then this whole world is going to be run by people who only think of that one thing and who, frankly, in the grand scheme of things, don't really give a damn about actual Black people in their lives. It's all about virtue signaling to each other. That is no way to run a world. So yeah, my advice is stand up to those people, endure the vitriol, and then walk on and contribute to real social justice. Okay. John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I mean, we could go on for hours talking about this stuff. Um, your book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Betrayed Black America, is out now in the UK, uh, I believe in paperback. Um, so I would strongly encourage our listeners to go out and buy it. It's a very pithily written, very funny, actually, as well, for quite a serious topic. Um, but So, uh, yeah, get out there and buy it. That's all from the CapEx podcast this week. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do tell your colleagues, friends, and perhaps even your enemies to subscribe to the podcast. We'll be back next week with another topical podcast. And our next big interview is with the science writer Will Storr about his fascinating new book, The Status Game. Thank you.